We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Regular listeners will know that I'm not a huge fan of New Year's resolutions because I feel like they just set you up to fail according to your own invented metric. But if there is one New Year's resolution that I would like you to keep or consider is to check out my first ever book, for young adults. It is Philosophy for Teens, a handbook for when things go wrong. And it's a spin-off of a version that I did for adults called simply Philosophy. It's out on the 5th of January. It is perfect for any children aged 12 plus who might be in your life or who might be listening to this podcast right now. Hello, I appreciate your ears. It is a guide to being happier, healthier, succeeding better. It helps you talk openly about failure. It helps you understand how failure can be turned into success. It also helps you to build resilience for when life sends you curveballs and hopefully to reframe any negative thoughts you might have about yourself. It's perfect for fans of Marcus Rashford's You Are a Champion and Bryony Gordon's You Got This. And the wonderful Matthew Saeed, author of You Are Awesome, was kind enough to say about this book that it is an indispensable guide for teenagers everywhere. I really wanted it to be a compassionate, pragmatic book that any teenager could pick up at any point in their lives and get something from and feel less alone. So if you want to buy it for the adolescent in your life, or if you are someone who's intrigued by it yourself, you can get it at all good bookshops and online from the 5th of January, but you can pre-order it now. And it is in my humble opinion, the perfect way to set yourself up for a new year. Thank you so, so much. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Roman Kemp is, by any metric, successful, handsome and popular. He's presented the Capital FM Breakfast Show since 2017, attracting a weekly audience of almost 6 million. In his teenage years, he was briefly both a musician and a model. His parents are the pop star and actor Martin Kemp and the singer-turned-photographer Shirley. His godfather was the late George Michael. It was a loving upbringing, 
but Kemp struggled beneath the surface. He went on antidepressants at the age of 15 to help with his mental health. As a radio presenter and familiar face on our TV screens, he came third in I'm a Celebrity and is a fan favourite along with his dad on Gogglebox. He's an effusive, cheerful and funny presence. And yet this outward self coexists with a sensitive and thoughtful individual who's spoken openly of his continued journey with mental health and depression. He didn't set out to become a campaigner, but in August 2020, his best friend and the producer of his radio show, Joe Lyons, died by suicide. Lyons' death was deeply shocking to all who loved him, leaving Kemp bereft, angry and searching for answers. Kemp went on to present an acclaimed BBC documentary on male suicide and wrote a best-selling book, Are You Really Okay?, packed full of personal reflections, insights and practical advice. It breaks me that I wasn't there for Joe, he writes. I want people to be the hero to their friend that I wasn't to mine. Roman Kemp, welcome to How to Fail. How are you? That was quite an intro. Quite an intro. It took us on a journey, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. What's the word effusive? What does that mean? Sort of enthusiastic oh. and like joyful. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I'll add that word to it. the other three. You have it. Yeah. <laughs> it is, I mean, it's, it's quite difficult to encapsulate yeah. everything that you have done over the last few years. And, yeah. I, and I want to pay tribute to you for... Thanks. This book, Are You Really Okay? Thank you. Tell us about the title because it comes from the idea of a double question, doesn't it? Yeah. So I made a documentary about, about suicide in uh, 2021. In that, I met some amazing people from all over the country. And, and at one point, I, I met a group of lads, young, 18, 17, 18, who had lost their best friend to suicide. And I remember asking them and I said, you know, when does this go away? When does this horrible feeling go away? And when does it get better? And they were like, it doesn't. You just try and learn how to deal with it in a different way each day. Mm. And I was like, okay, but what do you do to safeguard one another? And they said, oh, we use a two okay rule. I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, they said, well, we ask, are you okay at the beginning of a sentence, like when we chat to each other, but we always make sure that if we're talking to one another in our friendship group, we ask again, are you okay? Or are you really okay at the end of the conversation? So to be honest, like putting, are you really okay on the front of the book was more so the question, not for the reader, but it's the question that I want the reader to then ask yes. for other people. Yeah. You know, this isn't aimed at necessarily someone that is struggling. This is aimed at people that don't really understand it and don't really know, you know, what's going on in other people's brains. You know, I get so many people always asking me saying, you know, your friend died by suicide. What should I look out for? The horrible answer is there isn't something you can look out for. There's not because everyone wears a mask and that mask is so tough and it's so hard to see through it. But uh, realistically, what you can do is you can push. And, you know, if you really are someone's friend, you will do whatever you can to get to the bottom of what's going on with them. And so that is why I'm pushing people to ask, mm. ask again, basically. And that was part of the devastation of Joe, wasn't it? That yeah. you didn't know and he was your best friend. Yeah. Not like when I say I didn't know, like did not know. We went out Friday night. We went for dinner, me, my mum, my dad and him. Saturday night and then we went out. Sunday, we watched football together at the pub. Monday night, he's dead. It doesn't make sense. When I heard that he had died, genuinely, I went through every scenario in my head and not one was suicide. Not one. Like, 
Originally, I thought he had choked on food. Then I thought, has he had a heart attack? Has he passed out after the shower? He's hit his head on the side. It wasn't until we were spoken to by the police and spoken to by the person that, that found him quite soon, like a couple hours, but it, within that two hours before we could have that conversation, I would never have thought that. And all of a sudden it was weird because all of a sudden I just had this hatred for him. It was like, you prick. Like, how could you do that? And I think that's something that with what's come out from definitely my situation and having spoken to a lot of people, you know, there was always a very, very tough taboo around when someone takes their own life. Can you feel like that? Can you feel like, how could you do that? Can you feel angry at a dead person that we look at and go, that's so sad, you were struggling. But the real answer is that's grief. That's what happens. I'm not angry at him in the sense of, I'm not angry that he was going through something, which clearly he was. I'm so sad for him. And I, you know, I wish I could give him a hug and I'd kiss him and tell him I love him and, and be there for him. But, but at the same time, it's reality that he has transferred his pain onto his whole entire family, his friend group and me. And for that, I hate him. You said it earlier on, like, I'm not a campaigner, but now this is my life. Mm. I'm finding it tough at the minute, yeah. harder than I thought I would in terms of taking on that weight. And there will come a point where I, I need to go, do you know what, mental health stuff, I need to personally step away from it for a little bit because it's a lot of responsibility and I'm not over my trauma yet. So whilst I can do this, I will do this. And whilst it's raw for me, I will want to show people how raw it is and, and you know, openly talk about it. But there will come a point where I go, okay, today I'm not talking about suicide. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Today yeah. I've, I've got, to, got to look out for myself. Yeah. First of all, I, I'm so sorry for no, it's okay. yeah. that loss. Yeah, yeah. And secondly, your courage in talking about this, mm. even when it is such a heavy weight, mm -hmm. is a radically generous act. And I appreciate it. And all of our listeners do as well. Yeah. Because your honesty is extremely powerful. And I think you know that, but this book is extremely honest. Yeah, but it had to be. Yeah. When I made the documentary, I, I knew, and my agent knew and my family knew, that if I was going to talk about other people and try and tell other people not to kill themselves, I was going to have to tell people what I'd been through. And that was what the people around me were nervous about. Of course they are, because they don't, you know, my, I wasn't thinking clearly at the time at all, but I was like, I need to do this. I couldn't sit on a documentary saying, how could someone think about killing themselves? When I knew that three years, two years before, I thought that mm. I wanted to kill myself. I'd been through several times where I've just been like, this is enough. I can't take it. How do I get out of this? For me, they come in terms of like, I, I see them as a bit of breakdowns. And they can come from a number of things for me. You know, you mentioned I've, I've taken antidepressants and that can come from, say, if I go on holiday and I forget my tablets and then three days after when I come back, I'm still not taking them because I haven't collected them yet. Stupid, right? Mm. But that can really set me in a spiral quite quickly. That's not my own dependency on a tablet, but it's just, that's just how my body works. In the same way for some people, it's like therapy. You know, at the minute, whilst I'm promoting a book and talking about it all the time, I've made sure that I'm doing weekly therapy as well for my own safety. Yeah. And as you said, it's, it's the responsibility thing. Here's the deal. The worst case scenario in all of this about talking about suicide is someone kills themselves. That's the worst case scenario for everything. It's already happened mm. in my world. Yeah. So I've got no qualms in talking about it. 
and I'm damn sure I'm not going to let it happen again. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? How are you feeling now? Yeah, tough. Really tough. I'm, I'm certainly nowhere near 100% because, you know, doing everything is is taking a toll on me in the sense of I'm two years on now from when it happened. You know, you have to think every time I go into that radio studio, I'm back in the same room where I had that moment, which was the worst moment of my life. And so I deal with that every day. And the show helps me with that. You know, talking to listeners and having my team around me, they help me with that. And also it's my responsibility. Mm. But the thing I'm finding really hard is taking on other people's things. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I'm so pleased that it helps other people. So pleased. And that is brilliant. And if I can help people in a formal sense in terms of release a book or we've got the, the doc or chat on a podcast like this, brilliant. You know, I'm, I'm happy. If I've got it in my head that I'm going to go and talk about it, that's fantastic. If I'm in Sainsbury's and someone wants to talk to me about suicide, I find that really tough. Of course. And that's just me being honest. Like, that's not to say, don't come up to me, don't talk to me in public. I just, some, every now and again, I find it really hard. You know, like, I, I, it happened to me the other day and I just broke down a little bit and I was just, you know, I was crying. I was just, I was just saying that, like, it's not my fault. Like, you know what I mean? It's not, it's like, you know, I'm like, I get that it's helping people, but it's not my fault that that's my job. Yes. Now? You never asked for it. No. Like, yeah. No. And like, that is tough. That is tough. It means so much to me. But as I said, there will come a point where maybe next year, I just need to just step away from it a little yeah. bit, just for a minute. And because obviously, like, look, it means so much to me in, in terms of like, you know, I'm so grateful that I can do things to, you know, and every talk that I ever do around the country, any hosting thing I ever do around the country, if anything is to do with suicide the money goes to the charity. You know, that's what happens. This is a charity set up in Joe's name. Yeah, Joe's buddy line. Yeah. Because I feel like that's not my money. It's not my money. I wouldn't have that money if, if that hadn't happened. So it's dirty money in that sense anyway. Mm. So it's like, do you know what I mean? So the first thing I did when I got the, the paycheck from the book was give, you know, give the money to the charity. You know, and we did that and it was really nice. And, you know, and I, I said how much I wanted to give and and that type of stuff. But in terms of going around and talking about it, I'm doing it to one, help the charity grow because it's so hard for charities, small charities, and two, for his family. Do you have dreams about Joe? I had one dream the other night. We were just back normal. He's a Tottenham fan and I'm an Arsenal fan. So you can imagine that was quite a weird mix. <laughs> yeah, we have dreams, but I never realized that he's dead. Mm which is quite strange. Yeah, that's um, difficult to wake up from. Uh, yeah, but it's quite nice. I don't mind it, you know, because I have a new scenario with something, someone that I'm never going to have again. Yeah. I still talk to him all the time. Like, you know, you have those moments where you sit and it's not praying, but it's just you talk out loud things that you want to say. Or I'll go to, you know, his grave and, and speak to him there. He's buried in this lovely place in Surrey and, you know, I'll, I'll go, and, go and speak to him. But other than that, it's just, it's reality. I'm, I'm very accepting of death, I think. I'm okay with that in understanding, okay, that person's gone. That's okay. It's more the way that he's gone. Yes. That's tough. This episode is airing in between Christmas and New Year. Yeah. And January is a really tough month for mental health. Yes. And for suicide rates. Yeah. You've already given so much in what you've said yeah. already on this podcast. 
But if someone is concerned about the mental mm -hmm. health of their friend or their loved one, or even if they're not concerned, yeah. because there seems to be no cause for concern, what advice would you give? What pragmatic tips? Ask twice. Yeah. You know, push. If there's any part of you that wants to push for a question, do it. Not being afraid to talk about suicide is the main thing. Is, you know, that word, people are so scared of saying it. And again, you know, I, I wrote an article recently for a publication and, and it was, it basically, I just said, it was just like, I can't believe how, you know, we've progressed into this, but it's getting to a point now where it's like you had AIDS and everyone saw that as a dirty disease that no one wanted to mention or talk about. Nowadays, the more you talk about it, it's out there in the open. There's a lot of things that can help. There's huge advances in the AIDS community. And that's, you know, looking fruitful now. The next one was cancer during the 90s where everyone just called it the big C, even bleeding into like, you know, the noughties. Mm. And now look at the advances. There's adverts all on the TV. You know, men go for regular checks. You know, we're now at a point in terms of like specifically, I can only speak from a male perspective. But you take a look at things like testicular cancer. It's like a 98, 99%, you know, success rate. And then now we've got this thing of suicide. And, and, and it's about time that we just accepted that word, realized that it's part of human life. And it is normal to think about suicide. It's okay. And when I, what I mean by that, it's okay. It's okay to have those feelings. And the more you understand that, you know, one in four men think about killing themselves at some point in their life. But yet every man thinks that they're the only person that thinks like that. Mm. And that scares them even more. If they know that more men think about it than they do, then they're more likely to talk about it. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. There is a huge, huge mental health problem, if not more, in women. But I can only ever speak from a male perspective, obviously. Coming around Christmas time, a lot of, unfortunately, the reason why a lot of men take their own lives, men, this is specific to men, is not anything to do with a tragedy or divorce or things like that, that a lot of people think, you know, they've lost all their money and, you know, it's terrible. It's as simple as I'm not where I should be in That's life. That's really interesting. So sad. Mm. So sad. Because that is in the eye of the beholder yeah that's why when people say about anyone in their walk of life whether this could be a really rich guy who has to everyone else everything but he's not up to his own standards and we set ourselves such unrealistic standards all the time as men in terms of what car we should own how much money we should have what family we have the girlfriend the wife whatever the partner we have all of those things and that's the reason why most men take their own life is because we don't give ourselves a buffer we think about it and do it. And that's the problem. We've got this instinctive way whereby when I play video games and things like that, people play video games online. When they're losing so badly at a video game, they'll just switch the PlayStation off. That's the equivalent of suicide for me. I'm losing at this game so badly. I know that I can start again and work it out, but I'd rather just switch it off. That is so powerful. And I think mm. you are incredibly gifted at putting very complicated ideas into words <laughs> i've never heard that before it's so yeah. that's thank you but you can imagine it right yeah, you know what totally, i mean totally yeah. totally this podcast is brought to you by squarespace the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online and i know this personally as i use squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional even for a technophobe like me and if you need any more encouragement here are some of the amazing things squarespace offer 
You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code FAIL10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Let's go on to your failures. Yes. I'm so intrigued as to where they're going to lead us. Yes. <laughs> your first failure is that you failed your driving test. Oh my God, yeah. So driving tests were like a big thing for me. But my failed driving test then leads me actually into my past test, which was even more of a trauma. So <laughs> my first big failure in life, I think, was my driving test. It yeah. means everything I'm to you, same. right? Yeah. At 17, and you know, I was one of those people that were like four weeks after you're 17, straight away, do your yeah. driving test. And I, I just had such a horrible memory of feeling like i absolutely smashed this test and the lady almost like taunted me at the end she was like i'm so pleased to say that you did everything right except from the beginning so you failed it was like she enjoyed it it? it was so (laughs) bad right it was so so bad but yeah i I was speeding on my driving test which isn't a good look Mm -hmm. but then i eventually did pass my driving test and the day i passed my test i wrote off my car yeah so okay wow how many goes did you have oh, to pass your test twice twice okay so we're i did the, it one second time and i had the same examiner both times did which, you yeah then you pass your driving test and you go and drive your own car then I drive my own car then i go out for dinner that night with my girlfriend at the time we were only like 17 and where did you go for dinner i can't Bella remember Pasta. no it was like <laughs> It's probably the ZZs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Classy. Yeah. Like 17. 17. Yeah. yeah ZZs. Yeah. And she used to live in like High Wycombe. Mm-hmm. So it was like Great Missenden Way. So it's like a few country lanes. Nice. And I remember I was going maybe under the speed limit, not fast at all. And then it was really dark and it was like a country lane where, you know, if another car comes up, you got to pull over, it goes around. So anyway, so I'm going round on this country lane. And then as I go round on this lane, I go over a give way, not realizing I've gone over a give way because the hedge just kind of stopped as you turn. Yeah. And then literally I've gone over it without realizing it. I just thought it was a turn. As I turn, all of a sudden headlights at the side of my car going about 50. Wham. You wrote about this in the book. Yeah. I didn't realize it was the day Wham. you passed your test. Day oh I passed my, my test. Gosh. Okay. Into the side. Car over. Smash everything. Airbags. Like the, you know, it looked like a scene out of EastEnders. Look like how my dad died in EastEnders, right? <laughs> and yeah, and it ended up to, you know, put my girlfriend at the time out of the car and, and yeah. like horrendous. But like, so driving and driving tests were definitely a fail at the beginning of my life. But you, everyone was fine in that crash, yeah, weren't thank they? Thank God. Thank goodness. I, I, if I'm genuinely honest, I don't know how. Someone was looking out for me that day because it was bad. 
I'm always intrigued when people say they fail their driving test and it's really stuck in their mind. It yeah. it totally did for me as well. It's traumatic. Well, I think you've really identified what it is. It's, yeah. the, it's like the first big test. And it's also for me, I lived in the middle of the countryside. It was representative of my freedom. Yeah. Like I really needed it in order yeah. to live the kind of life I wanted to live. It's traumatic from a social aspect and yeah. for a life aspect. You feel yeah. like I've got to do this all over again. I've got to go and tell my mates that I've failed it. Do you yes. know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I go back to it all the time. And, I, and this is a, a lot of thing that I talk about with the school. I'm always obsessed with parents saying to their kids, you know, school is the easiest, best time of your life. You should enjoy it. No, it's not. I could school not agree more. Horrendous. Awful. I'm like, so relieved now but, still that I'm not at school. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like, like all of us all come out of school and go, oh, that was bad. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm. But yet when we see kids, we're like, no, I enjoy it. You get to just do this and call. You got to think like as a child, even from like reception upwards. You're learning social cues. You're being pressured academically. You're in a classroom full of people that you've got to talk in front of. You've got all these things, right? And it's so traumatic. Mm. Like you're constantly pushed to see who is the best, who is the best child in this class. Yes. And that's like messed up. Like, and, and so I'm always surprised that there's not more safeguarding around children when they are at school in terms of their psych. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of their mental health, because it's like we just expect kids to be fine with it because they can't articulate what's going on. Yeah. So that's my... my, my it's a thing. very good point. And actually, it ties in with something that I talk about a lot. So I've had fertility issues. And yeah. I think fertility should be taught in schools in yeah. the same way as I'm mental I'm terrified health. as a guy. Like, yeah. like, I was terrified about fertility. Really? Yeah. Like, I've actually made a movement of a couple of my guy mates now. We're all going and testing our sperm count. That's amazing to yeah. hear. Well, it's scary. I love but that. But again, I think a lot of guys don't admit that. Yeah. But to me, family's everything. Like, family's everything. Like, for me, the only thing that really matters to me is that I have kids. Mm. Genuinely. For me, that's like, you're here to make other good human beings. You know, if I can't do that, then obviously I'll adopt or whatever. whatever. But fertility is a big thing. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah, that's true. Thank you for sharing that. No, that's okay. <laughs> I wanted to ask you finally on your driving test before we move on, mm. how much of it was to do with anxiety? I feel anxious every single time I get behind the wheel of a car because yeah. I'm so aware of all the things that could go wrong. And it's actually yeah. quite, you have to suspend that in order to be able to function. Sure. When you're doing your driving test, you're always nervous. Now I'm a good driver. I've already seen what a horrendous crash looks like. And I know I definitely don't want to do that ever again. Mm. You know, the noise and everything. You know, I can still hear the noise now. Like, I don't really want to go through that again. So it made me a better driver. Yeah. But definitely, who knows? Maybe if I'd passed on that first day, maybe it would have been a worse crash. And that's why I had to fail it. Well, this is what this podcast is all about. Yeah. That's a failure yeah. that taught you how to succeed better as a yes, driver. precisely. Okay. Your second failure, I've never had this before. Yeah, go on. Is that you failed to be Batman. Yes. First of all, I should preface this by saying that I know from the book that you were born in a superhero position. Yes, I was, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. means what? Well, my mum always used to say this. My mum always used to say that a psychic told her it's about money or some postnatal, a baby psychic or something. Hmm. If a baby comes out with arm first in a Superman pose, they're ready to receive they're ready to receive things. They're ready to, you know, go out into the world and earn... Have things come to them. Money and have things come to them. Yes, good things come to them. So she was always talking about that. But as a child, I was always, always obsessed with Batman. Batman was my number one thing. Like, it was everything to me in the sense of my pyjamas, my bedsheets. It was either Arsenal or Batman. 
That was my life. All the Batman toys, all the Arsenal kits, anything I ever wanted. The first, you know, great present that George Michael ever bought me when I was a kid was a Batmobile. You know, when you go to Harrods and you see those like electric cars, those little cars, fully reverse and drive. Yes. It bought me a Batmobile. It was unreal. Great Godfather. Still got it. Still got it, right? Still work. Still driving in it. Still that's, driving that's in the it. Car. That's why I filmed a test. <laughs> um, God knows I was speeding in it. Um, and I was Batman obsessed. And I was, you know, I, I loved all of, you know, a- anything. When I was around 10 to 14, I started getting quite a lot of like requests come through for me to audition for things. Mm-hmm. I think my dad was in EastEnders at the time. And they were saying, oh, does he have a, he has a son? What, can the son act or whatever? And so my dad's agent started like just sending me things through being like, this person's asking for this. This person's asking for this. And then all of a sudden this script comes through and it's for Batman Begins. And I was like, you're kidding. And I was like, who do they want me to play? And they were like, Bruce Wayne. And I was like, what actual Batman? And they're like, yeah, it's like the young kid part in it. You know, when the Joker kills yes, his parents. parents. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the film? In the film. Okay, okay. This is, sorry, I suddenly got excited. Yeah. I was like, I remember that scene That in the scene, film. yeah. Okay. And then he goes down the well and then the bats yes. raise him and all that jazz, right? So like that kid, I was going into auditions for that. And I went into the first audition, must have nailed it. Went into the second audition, must have nailed it. Then got to about like the sixth audition. And I know it was just me and this kid. And it got to a point where it was all being sent off to Christopher Nolan and, and I didn't get it. Oh, Roman. I felt my one chance in life to do it, to say I am Bruce Wayne and I failed. That is such a good failure. Close, isn't it? I did not know no. because he just said I failed to be Batman. Yeah, no, I, and- I, but genuinely failed to be Batman. And how old were you? Did you say 13, 14? I'm, I'm, no, I must have been around. This was quite early on. I must have been around 10. That must have been so disappointing. Yeah, I was gutting. How did you deal with it at that age? You know, I'm not sure. My parents were always quite good with it. My parents were always just like with auditions and things like that. Like I got a few bits when I was a kid, but it was always just like, I don't know. I, I never really cared too much about it in mm. terms of acting because it was just my dad's job. You yes. know, it was just my dad used to film us all the time doing silly stuff and you know so it was never really like you know i used to read scripts with my dad all the time i guess i was just more focused on you know what the school the arsenal match was going to be that night as opposed to you know when my parents when you're a kid and you're you're like oh you didn't really get that and you're kind of like oh okay Mm -hmm. next thing but looking back on it now i'm more upset about it now (laughs) do you still like batman i love batman so you'll still watch the movies it hasn't put you off no i love batman more than anything what is it that you love about batman what does he represent don't know i think it was just that vigilante kind of attitude i guess Mm -hmm. you know still fighting for good but doing it in a different way who's your favorite batman actor oh i mean i liked the nipple suit i did like george clooney but i just think christian bale was really good michael keaton does he get see i love michael keaton i I would say that's my favorite batman film yes Fine, in the round. In the round. Got it. I would say, yeah, I would say, but who is most believable as mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne is Christian Bale. Yes. But I don't like his Batman voice. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't like that. <laughs> well, he listens to House Fail, so he'll know. Yeah, you know, I thought kidding. he did. Yeah. <laughs> Just going back there a bit, because you mentioned your parents, and yeah. your parents come out so well in your book. Yes. And too well. I mean, too well almost. It's taking yeah. the, I'm doing the PR. spotlight away from you. Yeah. And Shirley, your lovely, lovely mum, mm. has been on this podcast and is 
just one of my most beloved guests of all time. She said, so yeah. I need to get Martin next and then yes. I'll have the full family, get there your you sister go. into. Well, he's got a book coming out, so he might as uh, well. Yeah, he's everywhere at the moment, know, isn't he? He was on Capsule everywhere. FM the other day. I know. <laughs> but I suppose a lot of people's approach to failure is often instructed by how they were raised and their upbringing. Yeah. What did your parents teach you about making mistakes or getting things wrong? That it's okay. It's always just about support, never about expectation with them. It's we'll support you if you want to go and do something and we'll support you if it doesn't work. Mm. And that's all I needed. I didn't need motivation because if you get this right, I will do this for you. It's just, we're here for you either way. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. If it does work out, it does work out. My, like we're positive, but anything to do with money or jobs or things like that, we're very much like, don't think about it never think about it never think about getting it or never mm. think about you know like if ever ever i go to my dad and i say oh i might be getting this job he goes cool put it out your head yeah that's good advice and and the only thing that you have to guarantee is that you have gratitude for the things that you do have yes and when you do get something then you have gratitude for that because the things that you don't have what's the point you know it goes back to my thing that i was saying earlier on so many guys have so much expectation about where we should be in life. It's even that thing of like that question. I would eliminate that question of where do you want to be in five years? So would I. It's unrealistic. And eliminate New Year's resolutions. That's another yeah. one of my bugbears. It's unrealistic. Yes. Unrealistic and unhelpful. I'd rather look back at everything I did last five years. Mm. And there's a lot, <laughs> you know, and then I go, Fuck, I've, you know, I've done loads. Well done, you know, and you feel proud of yourself. You know, you go back five years, you haven't even started this podcast. No. So, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, think how much your life has changed. Totally. You know? And, and I think you're so wise there because the problem with a five-year plan is that we have, as you say, unrealistic expectations of ourselves. Mm. But we also don't know who we're going to be in five years. We no. don't know what circumstances might have changed. Yeah. And if you get to that five-year point and you think, well, I haven't ticked this off my list that mm. I made five years ago for different me, yeah. then you feel like a failure according to your own metric. 100%. So just reduce the stress on yourself. Yeah. But also... You know, my dad is someone that I always look at in terms of people forget as well that as a family, kind of what we went through when my dad was sick. My dad had two brain tumors when I was growing up and that came out of nowhere. Doesn't matter who you are, how much money you have, how well your life is going. Something can happen like that that changes your course forever. And it's always knowing that it's not a fear of that, but it's an acceptance that things out of your control can change your life forever. Yeah. So trying to plan five years ahead you can try but there are things in life that will happen and it's about rolling with that and accepting it and keeping on going and 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 i always you know admire my parents mainly my mum like if i'm honest like my dad was in the driving seat obviously but as a mum watching that thinking i've got two kids i've currently not got any source of income and my husband's about to die what do you do do you know what i mean and i speak to my mum about that all the time that's the thing I'm so proud of my mom for. I couldn't imagine. And we're so lucky that my dad didn't pass away. You know, I couldn't imagine life without him. But that's why it makes me so sad. I meet a lot of, you know, my dad does a lot of work for brain tumor charities and things like that. And it makes me so sad when I see kids that lose their parents young because I just, I feel guilty. I feel like I kept mine. Mm. I got to keep mine. And that's the best thing in my my life, in my world. And so that, that I'd say harbors quite a lot of guilt, but... Sorry, I've gone off your question straight no, away. But no. but it is, you know, it, it is that thing of like, when I think about my parents and, and everything they've taught me, it is the things that they, they always want to preach about is enjoy the current moment that you have and have gratitude for the moment that you have. 
looking forward, you'll just almost disappoint yourself. Yes. Yes. Oh, we all need a Martin and Shirley in our <laughs> lives. We do. They're uh, a good mix. Yeah. And I know that Shirley has been instrumental at points in your life when yeah. your mental health has been a struggle, yeah. partly because of what she went through with her dad. Yeah. Who struggled with his mental health. And Yeah. Yeah. Big time. My mum's dad was miserable. I really struggle with speaking about him because on one sense, I love him. He's my family. He's my blood. I look a lot like him. But on the other side, he was someone that was abusive towards my nan. And I love my nan. And, you know, it's a very weird relationship. He was very abusive to my nan. He wasn't excellent to his kids, I wouldn't say. His values weren't in line with what mine are at all. And that, for me, is really difficult. Yes. However, what I do look at now is that here's a man who was struggling, struggling with heavy undiagnosed depression, heavy undiagnosed anxiety, purely hormonal and that has been passed down through my mum's side of the family. My auntie suffers with very similar issues to me. She looks very similar to me. So my mum was really scared that that would manifest itself and it kind of has into me. And so when I was 15, the second she could take me to the doctor, she did. And, you know, the doctor said, you know, hormonally and et cetera, everything you're describing is depression. You know, I would say I'd wake up and I'd have this feeling of sadness and just I guess personal dejection I guess, from other yes. people not wanting to talk. And some people can put it down to like teenage angst, but my mom didn't want to take any chances. But now I'm so pleased, you know, the way how my mom has led me to be open about that and unflinching when talking about it. I mean, certainly after Joe died, but now I don't think there's an insecurity that I wouldn't talk about. I don't think there's a part of me because I feel like the more I talk about it, the better it becomes. Mm -hmm. And that's genuinely how I feel. I feel like it's a part of your brain that you're exercising when you talk about it. And that's all because of my mum, what she's taught me. Your final failure is that you failed to be a musician. Yes. So what happened? How did you get into band in the first place? Really weirdly, I was like contacted one day by these two guys to see if I'd ever be interested in writing music and, you know, you know, performing live and things like that. And I was like, yeah, of course. I knew how to play guitar. My dad had taught me. I knew how to play bass guitar. I knew how to play bass guitar better than I knew how to play guitar because of my dad. Mainly because when my dad had his brain tumors, he forgot all of his Spandau Ballet mm. music. Did he? Like, it, like his bass lines. And I had to reteach them to him. Okay. That's beautiful. Which was really nice. Yeah. I have a really nice memory of that. Yeah. I remember him sitting down with me and me going, no, no, no. My ear has been good i can hear something and tell you what what you know on a, on a guitar and so i used to teach him how to do it which is quite a weird experience so yeah i was contacted by these guys and, and then they were like yeah come down and like we'll just have a chat turns out everyone was working for universal music and next thing i know i'm being drafted into like a 360 deal which is like you basically become the label's bitch and what i mean by that is any project that they kind of want you to be a part of. They can put you in that project. Anyone they want you to write with, they can make you write with them. You can go and perform live for certain people, support people at shows, etc. And I did it. And to be honest, it was kind of like my university. I signed a deal when I was 15 and I barely finished my, my mock GCSEs. I just left. I didn't, I didn't go back for any lessons. I just turned up on the day of my exams because I felt like I've done it now. Mm. I was like, okay, I've, I've got all of that. I know I'm rubbish at school because I wasn't great at school. I was good at drama and RE, weirdly. So I, I ended up just doing the music thing. And then all of a sudden it kind of formulated into this band where we had three other lads 
and it really worked. You know, it went from, oh, maybe write a song for someone else or this, this, this to, hang on a minute, we could make a band here. We made a band and this band kind of kicked off to the point where we were then being poached by Sony Music and all this stuff and we play in all these different places. But then the day that we're meant to go and sign this deal with Sony, our lead singer pulls out and says that he doesn't want to do it anymore. He wants to go to university. And just like that, your dream's over. And all of a sudden the label don't want you anymore. You've not spent time as a solo person. You've just spent time as a band. So people know you as a band. You can either start from zero again or leave. And let me tell you, at 18, that's crushing. Mm. 18, 19, crushing. Because you're like, everything was set out yes. for success. And one person's decision has changed that, bro. And it was really hard, really, really hard. It was great. I loved the fact that I did it. I loved it. You know, we would set in sold out shows at O2 Academies and stuff like that. Like, it was great. It was sick and got a taste of it and, you know, whatnot. And it was going to go on to do good things. I'm sure of it. But I remember the day where we got the call because we were all waiting to go into this meeting and he was, he was late and we were like, where are you? And like, he's like, I'm not doing it. We we're like, what? <laughs> so we had to all go home and then just be like, we've got no deal. What do we do? What do we do? And then everyone else like tried to form a new thing. And I was at that point, I was like, I'm done. Like I said, I was like, I can't do this. The three years before, two, three years of doing it, it was a lot already. Like it was very adult at a time where I wasn't ready to be an adult in so many ways, going out and whatnot, but also being in meetings with like heads of labels and then being pretty straight up, you know, having business chats with you is intimidating. Mm. And when that went and when that decision was made, yeah. It triggered a mental health spiral for you, didn't it? Of course, yeah. yeah. Again, I had one of those kind of breakdown moments where I just ended up just crying all the time. And then, you know, and then and then my mum having to speak to me and then my mum reset me back on my life again. Mm. My mum sat me down and said, you know, what is it you love? And, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, well, you just need, okay, well, take yourself out of the equation for a sec. You know, I was doing modeling on the side and those types of things, but didn't mean anything to me. I dislike, actively dislike the fashion industry, but I can still say that now. I don't agree with any of their values at all. You write in the book about how Mm. certain male models, you were expected to go to parties, fashion parties, and there were a lot of predatory males there. Yeah, 100%. I've never read that anywhere before. Yeah, 100%. That must have been horrible. Yeah, quite weird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of the values in that industry, I do not agree with. It's just how I am. Like, mm-hmm. I respect the artistry 100%. Like, you know what I mean? Really respect the artistry. But in terms of, they are so far behind in terms of their expectations of men, women, or whatever sex you are. Expectation, again, sets people up for failure. And it's unfair. I ended up kind of like not doing that, but then moving into, worked in a gym, cleaning the equipment for a little bit, which was horrible. Um, but I did that to save up money to then do what I wanted to do, which was talk about football. And I built a football studio in my basement and filmed myself talking about football. And then one thing led into another and all of a sudden you become a cameraman for other people, but also a sports presenter. And that bled into capital and so on. And that's where we are now. Yes. <laughs> you are the voice of a nation. Oh, no. You are you're the voice oh. of a nation, the voice of a generation. Oh, I've you. loved our chat so much. Yeah, I, can't, I can't thank you enough for your no, it's okay. it's honesty, your humor, your profundity. And I can't wait to see what you do next, even though there is no five-year plan. No, there really isn't. <laughs> I, like Everyone always says it. They're like, they're like, so, you know, I don't know. If something comes up, I get offered it. I'll see how I feel. Mm-hmm. If I like it, then I'll do it. 
And I might see you in the big Sainsbury's near yes. us. Yes. <laughs> yes. We both love a big Sainsbury's. Yes. There you go. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Thank Roman you. Roman Kemp, thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.